Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you for this Shabbat, for your holy Shabbat that you have given us in order to be able to gather in worship, in unity, in your presence, in your Ruach HaKodesh. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives. Father, I pray that you move mightily and powerfully among us and that your word ring true and powerful in our midst. Father, speak boldly today. Use me as a vessel for you. Let nothing of me be involved in this message except that which you have ordained for your purposes. Abba, we worship you, we thank you, and we ask you to move. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. This week we are in Parsha Mishpatim, uh, and, uh, but I want to actually start a little bit post Parsha Mishpatim, I want to start a little bit post-Exodus 21 with Matthew 22. Uh, most of you should be relatively familiar with the book of Matthew and, uh, and, and the fact that it is a gospel and speaks to the narrative of Messiah's life, death, burial, and resurrection for our sins. But I believe that this particular passage sets us up beautifully for our Parsha this week. So Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34. We say this each week in our uh, service, and, and it's powerful, it's one of my favorite things to dig into. It says, but the Pharisees, when they heard that Yeshua had silenced the Sadducees, gathered together in one place and testing him. One of them, a lawyer, asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the Torah? And he said to them, you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the first and greatest command. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now we know the first from the Vahafta comes from Deuteronomy 6. The second, uh, the, the latter part of, of prayers that we say uh, every week in our services, every day in our personal life is Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. And, and it's really interesting to look at this because what we see, or at least what I see as I look at the body of Messiah around us and we look at how to live a godly lifestyle, we look at how to live out our faith in a physical and real expression of life. You know, I talk to believers all the time, and quite often I ask people just to see what the response may be. You know, what do you define as the believing life, or what do you find as a Christian life? How do you define that? How do you live that life out? And the general answer is a very plain, simple, baseline love, right? Everybody says love. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. Um, but, but a lot of times we, we miss out on the reality that we don't really know how to love. I mean, in general, right? We, we don't know how to fulfill those commands. It's, it's all great and wonderful to say, oh, but it's all done in love. And, and I love you, or, or in the South, that loving expression that, that everybody dreads to hear, oh, bless your heart. Um, you know, the, these are things that are said in, in love, right? But is it really in love? What does it look like to love our neighbors ourselves? What does it look like to love the Lord our God? Yeshua says that the most important command is to love the Lord with all our heart, with our soul, with our strength, and love our neighbor as ourself as the second. And upon these two do all of the Torah hang. So we know from last week's Parsha with the, uh, the, the Aseret HaDibrod, the ten words, that we read about the ten commandments that are given at Mount Sinai. And generally speaking, we go, okay, these are universal commands. You know, it should be acceptable universally that we shouldn't commit murder or that we shouldn't steal people's stuff, or we shouldn't lie about them, right? These are relatively universal commands. They're relatively easy to grasp and just say, okay, everybody should do this. But do we truly know how to live them out? 
right? We talked about this last week some. Do we actually know how to live these out? You know, the, the fifth command is to love, uh, to honor your father and mother, right? Do we actually know how to do that? How do you honor your father and mother? It's a great, you know, mindset to have. It's a great thought to have. But how do we actually do that? How do we manifest that love in a way that actually shows it? How do we manifest that honor for our parents in a way that actually shows it? And I've had young people ask me that before. Look, I see that the Torah says that we're to honor our father and mother. How do I do that? How do I do that? Well, the reality is, is the rest of the Torah and, and ultimately the rest of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation as a whole, tells us exactly how to do that. The scriptures as a whole gives us an outline, a guideline for how to do it. And it's called the Word of God. And throughout the Word of God, and, and in this particular Parsha, Parsha Mishpatim, we see this. There are uh, 53 of the 613 accepted commandments of the Torah. There are 53 of them in this week's Parsha. 23 of them are imperative. There are, you must do this. And 30 of them are, are prohibitions. You must not do this. All right? Um, just like with our, our Ten Commandments, you have imperatives and you have uh, prohibitions. Do not commit murder. Do not sin. Honor your father and mother. Honor the, or, or remember the Shabbat, right? There are imperatives and there are, and there are prohibitions. And so on this week's Parsha, we have 53 of the 613 commandments. And what's interesting is I hear people all the time in talking about the, the Torah and the commandments and, and whether or not we should keep it or shouldn't keep it. And that's a discussion for another day that I just don't feel like getting into right now. But, but I hear people all the time make comments like this. We say something along the lines of, oh, but nobody can actually honor the Torah. There's just too much there. There's just too much to do. It's, it's too big. It's too extravagant. Nobody can keep all of the commandments. Nobody can keep, right? And we hear these things all the time. But then we look at this week's Parsha, Parsha Mishpatim, and we realize, oh, wait, this Parsha is full of commandments. I mean, just slap full of commandments. But each of them are actually practical. Each of them, if you pay attention, actually tell us how to either love our neighbor or to love the Lord. So when we ask... Yeshua says the, most, the second most important command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we ask, how do we do that? We can actually go to a specific passage of Scripture, Parsha Mishpatim from Exodus 21, 1 through 24, 18, and we can specifically see in detail in black and white text exactly how to do that. It starts out, and, and people hate this, it starts out in all honesty dealing with slavery, all right? Let's, let's be honest, slavery existed during the days of the Bible, it wasn't the same as what we think of slavery as today and what have you, but it was there. And, and God never actually condoned slavery. As a matter of fact, you know, there are commands that deal with plurality of marriage, right? With polygamy. You can have multiple wives and, and so on and so forth. There are people that build entire theologies off of polygamy and how the Bible allows it, so it must be God's will for us and da-da-da, right? The Bible tells us, and, and God tells us through the scriptures, the Bible tells us we're going to be idiots, and in being idiots, God tries to direct us to not make being an idiot even worse than it already is, right? So nowhere in the scripture does God say that slavery is good or okay. As a matter of fact, there are countless places we can look at scripture and go, this is very clear, slavery is a bad idea, right? Easily. But what he does do is go, you're still idiots. You're still going to do stupid stuff. Let me help you fix this so it's not more stupid than it has to be until I can correct the rest of your life. Because you got to remember, like I said last week, in dealing with the commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments, right? We, we look at the, the Scriptures and we see that there are physical commands, there are external commands, and there are internal commands, right? Do not commit murder is an external command, right? It's an external prohibition. But Yeshua says, if you've even hated somebody in your heart, you've already committed that sin. Well, hate is an internal thing. Hate's also dealt with in the Torah, right? 
Both are commands against. They're a prohibition against both. But what Yeshua is telling us is for every external command, for every external sin, there's an internal sin. And if we just let him handle the inside, the outside won't be a problem. The outside will fall in place, right? And so as we look through the scriptures, we see this throughout the scriptures over and over again. And, and so here in this week's Parsha, it says right out the gate, verse 1, now these are the ordinance which you will set before them. Uh, Adonai is speaking to Moses and he tells them you're to go down to Israel and you tell them these are the ordinances, these are the commandments. Because last week when they heard the audible voice of God, they became frightful, they became scared and they said, Moses, we don't want to hear the voice of the Lord again or we will die. Moses, you go and get his commandments, you go and get his word, you bring it back and everything he says do, we will do. And so Moses goes, okay, that's what we'll do. And God says, all right, that's a, a good thing. I see their heart, I know where they're at, I know that they're being honest. I don't want that. I want to speak to them face to face. I want to speak to them and them hear my voice, but I understand where their heart's at right now. I'm looking for the greater picture when Messiah corrects their heart, uh, when my salvation comes, and then they can hear my voice again. But in the meantime, Moses, you're my intermediary. Moses, you're the one that's going to share this. So then we go dealing with uh, the, the commandments about slavery and so on and so forth. Verse 12 is where I want to pick up at of chapter 21 of Exodus. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies must surely be put to death. All right, cool. You kill somebody, you're responsible for his life, right? Then he goes on to say, but if he did not hunt him down, yet God caused it to happen, then I will appoint for you a place where he, is to, he may run. And it's dealing with the, the cities of refuge later uh, that, that come up in later commands. But he says, if it wasn't intentional, if it wasn't murder, I'll provide a place of grace and mercy. Then he goes on, if a man presumes to kill his neighbor with craftiness, in other words, premeditated, if you planned this out, it is murder when it's premeditated. You are to take him from my altar and put him to death. You're to take him away from my presence because the presence of God cannot reside in the midst of sin. You're to take him away from my presence and you're to kill him. Uh, then he goes on, anyone who strikes his father or his mother must surely be put to death. Oh, hold on, hold on. Slow down. Number five, honor your father and mother. How do we do that? Okay, here's an example. Don't hit your mom and dad, right? Should make perfect sense. That's rather common sense. I'll look at that and go, you know what? We can say that one's universal. Nobody should hit their mom or dad. We'll make that one universal. That one's acceptable across the board, right? Then we go on. Anyone who steals a person uh, and sells him or is found with him under his bed most surely, most, must surely be put to death. And we go on. Whoever curses his father or his mother must surely be put to death. Okay, now we have another example of how to honor our father and mother. Don't hit them and don't curse them, right? Now, as believers, we believe fervently that our words are, are true, that our words ring forth and our words have meaning, right? And we can speak uh, curses or we can speak, and I'm not talking like witchcraft, I'm talking things like, you know, how, how many of us have ever dealt with somebody bullying on us in school or telling us we're stupid or we're dumb or telling us we'll never amount to anything and then realize later in life that we spent way too many years buying into those curses, buying into the fact that this dude over here 20 years ago said I'd never amount to anything. And look at my life. I've literally let that rule and reign and I've let the enemy fester in there so that I can never amount to anything, right? We let these things go on all the time. But the words here, the word here in verse 17 says, whoever curses his father or mother must surely be put to death. If we speak a curse over our father or mother, we should be put to death. If we speak wrong about our parents, if we curse them, it goes back to number five, honor your father and your mother. 
Verse 22, if men fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her child is born early, yet no harm follows, the one who hit her is to be strictly fined according to what the husband's demand, the woman's husband's demands of him. He must pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you are to penalize life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, blow for blow. I'm not going to go into politics, but sounds rather problematic if you have particular political stances and leanings. I'll let you determine from there how you want to to extrapolate my statements. Um, But we see very quickly, now he's looking at the life of the mother and the life of a child, right? And we see that that life of a mother and life of a child is really important to God because it's part of his creation, right? His breath of life is within that mother. His breath of life will be when that baby comes uh, out of the womb and breathes in that first time, will be in that baby. And I believe personally that breath of life is already in that baby because the breath of life is in the mother, which is providing the oxygen that baby needs to live. The breath of life of God, the breath of God himself is already in that child. And so we see that there's this protection over the mother and the child and that there is uh, punishment and penalization if, if either is hurt or, or wrong is done because of this. And we see that God looks after the little, uh, the little one. And what we realize, and we go to verse 33, if one uncovers a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in, the owner of the pit must pay compensation. He is to give money to the owner, and the dead animal will be his. We see right out the gate, take care of your neighbor, right? How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? We don't leave a hole in our backyard and not tell people. We don't leave a hole in our front yard and not tell people so that they fall in it and hurt themselves or their animals fall in and hurt themselves or their children fall in and hurt themselves. We look out for people. There are other commands in the Torah that tell us that if you have a, a terrace on the top of your house in, in uh, Middle Eastern culture, you would have your living, especially back then before AC, your living quarters or your, your like living room would be on the top of your house. Because out there it's cool, inside it's stuffy, it's warm, because it gets hot in the desert. And so you'd have your, your, your actual entertainment area where you would reside, where you would rest with your family in your living room, up on the top as a terrace. And the Torah tells us to put a fence around your roof line so that if somebody's up there hanging out on your roof, they don't fall over, right? I don't know about you, but I hear people all the time that talk about the God of the Old Testament being an angry and vindictive God, being a God who is... As I hear, hear my father jokingly say all the time, is, it's just a mean old ogre, right? And we think about Shrek, and he's just mean and angry all the time. And if you don't like Shrek, sorry, I think it's funny. But he's just this mean and angry ogre, and, and everything is the end of the world for him, and he wants to ruin everybody's life, and da-da-da-da. And a lot of believers look at the God of the Old Testament as though that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know about you, but I don't buy into a God who changes. The Word said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever right? And so for everything that we see in the Old Testament that we look at, and we go, but this God just seems mean and angry. Like he tells us to wipe out the Canaanites. But does he really? Because there's commands in the Torah that say not to go in and wipe them out until first you've given them a chance to fall in relationship with Israel and to fall in relationship with the, the Lord. So is he really telling us to wipe them out? Or is he telling us that our job is to be a light into the nations and if we go into Canaan and we live out a righteous life as we're supposed to, as we begin the campaign to take our inheritance, that these people should join in and take part. They didn't and God knew their heart and he knew what the outcome would be anyways, which is why he says it's okay to go in and do that. But God's intention is never for anyone's life to be lost. God's intention is for all to be saved, right? 
even now with the blood atonement of Messiah, his intention is for all to be saved. And so we develop this dichotomy of God as though there's the God of the Old Testament that's mean, vindictive, angry, judgment, judgeful, and all he is is this big old mean ogre. And there's the God of the New Testament. And he's a really sweet, loving God and caring. And he just wants to cuddle you up like a giant teddy bear and hold on to you and let nothing wrong happen to you and no bad happen. But the gospel, Yeshua tells us in his own word, lots of bad stuff's going to happen to us. Lots of bad stuff's going to happen before anything good really comes about to end that bad stuff. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see in the Torah, in the, the attributes of God, that God is slow to anger, that God is quick to forgive, that God is merciful, that God is love. He's also just. If you don't repent, if you don't turn back to him, there are consequences, and that is just, and that is his right. But that doesn't make him angry and vindictive and, and ogreish. That makes you an idiot for not repenting. We live in America, right? And America is good for one thing. I mean, we're good for a lot of things. I don't want to water down, but, but we're good for really good for one thing. And that's putting the blame on other people, right? As Americans, we never take the blame for anything. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else that caused the problem. It doesn't matter how bad our lives are. It doesn't matter how stupid we were to get where we are. It's somebody else's problem. Somebody else did it, right? And this has become the mentality, not just America, but in general of the world today, the mentality is it's always somebody else's problem, somebody else's fault, somebody else caused this. But the Word of God says we're responsible for our own lives. The Word of God says as a community of like-minded believers, we are each responsible for each other's lives because one person's sin can ruin the whole lot. A little bit of chametz, a little bit of leavening can ruin the whole batch of dough, right? We're all part of this dough. We're all part of what God Go through this Parsha over and over and over again. What we see is a continuization of these commands that people look at the Torah and go, he's just a mean, ugly, vindictive, angry ogre. But we realize that every single command in this Parsha sums up what every single person crying out for social justice is talking about, and it puts the responsibility in our own hands, not in the hands of our government, not in the hands of those in leadership around us, but in our own hands to take care of these people, right? Verse 4 of chapter 22, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be eaten by letting his animals loose, in other words, if you let your animals go do their own thing and they ruin somebody else's stuff and it feeds on another man's field, then he is to make restitution from the best of his field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and spreads among thorns so that stalks of grain, standing grain, or the fields themselves are consumed, then the one who lit the fire must make full restitution. Uh, go on to verse 20. You must not, uh, verse 20 of chapter 22, you must not exploit or oppress an outsider, for you were outsiders in the land of Egypt. It doesn't seem like a mean, ugly, angry, vindictive ogre, right? It seems like a loving, caring God who cares not only about Israel, but about all of his creation. Verse 21 starts to speak forth words that we hear pretty regular coming straight out of the gospel, right? This is Yeshua's words, which is no surprise because Yeshua is the word made flesh. Verse 21 of chapter 22 of Exodus, you must not mistreat any widow or orphan. If you mistreat them in any way and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will not burn hot and I will not, and I will kill you with the sword. So your wives will become widows and your children will become orphans. If you lend money to any of my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act like a debt collector with them and you are not to charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering his cloak for his skin. What will he sleep in when he cries out? to me I will hear because I am gracious. 
When we go to verse 1 of chapter 23, do not spread a false report, do not join hands with the wicked by becoming a malicious witness. Lashan hara, we say in Hebrew, the evil speak, the evil tongue. Refers to gossip and slander and such. And I want you to understand something, the concept as we see here, the concept of Lashan hara is not only what we speak, it's what we allow to reside in our lives. So if you're in the midst of a crowd and you hear people speaking Lashan hara about somebody else, and Lashan hara doesn't have to be inaccurate, it can be true but it's not your truth to share with other people. Just like it can be a, a absolutely accurate and be bad about somebody, but it's not your truth to tell about them. All right? Lashana Ra, we are responsible for what we say, but we're also responsible for what we hear because we could easily either walk away or say, look, that's, that's not right. We shouldn't do that. And look, I, in, in congregational settings, I call it shadow talkers. There's always those people that want to get in the shadows and the corners and drag people over there and they want to talk trash or they want to tear down what the Lord is doing or want to destroy what's happening and it breeds division and disunity in the midst of the kelah, the congregation. And the reality is, is this isn't godly either. This is Lashan Hara. It's evil tongue, evil speak. It's bad. And it destroys. Our words can destroy. And so he says, do not spread a false report. Do not join hands with the wicked by becoming a malicious witness. Don't sit there and witness this as it's going on and not try to stop it or at least walk away from it. Verse 4, if, your enemy, uh, if you find your enemy's ox, and this is where it gets interesting because now he's not talking about just what we do for people we like, for our neighbors or our family. Now he's going out of the box. If your enemy, if the Kenizzites, if the, uh, uh, any other, the Canaanites, the Philistines, whoever, if your enemy says, if you find your enemy's ox or your, his donkey going astray, you must surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of the one that hates you lying down under its burden, do not leave it. Rather, you are to release it with him. You are not to pervert justice to your poor in his, in the, in his dispute. Stay far away from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the guilty. Take, bribe for, <clears throat> take no bribe, for a bribe blinds those who have sight and perverts the words of the righteous. And then verse 9 repeats what we read earlier uh, in chapter 23, 22, verse 20. Uh, it says, Do not oppress the outsider, for you know the heart of an outsider, since you were an outsider in the land of Egypt. Verse 13, With all these things that I have said to you, take head, make no mention the names of other gods, and do not let them be heard in your mouth. And in this passage, he talks about the Shabbat, and he talks about the, uh, the, the pilgrimage feast of, of Pesach, of Shavuot, and Sukkot. Uh, and then at verse 20 of chapter 23, things get interesting because he starts making this real to us, as believers especially, because all of a sudden he starts talking about the Messiah who will come. Verse 20 says, Behold, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. Watch for him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him because he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you listen closely to his voice and do everything I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You are not to bow down to their gods or serve them or do what they do. Rather, you are to utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. The body of Messiah, we are way too quick to let God go and, and rid us of the enemies around us, and then we just slowly start to adapt to their mess into our lives. And the Lord tells us to tear down those strongholds, tear down those high places, and to allow our lives to be molded in the work of the Ruach, a Kodesh of the Holy Spirit. 
And this is an important reality because what we're about to touch on in the culmination of this whole uh, uh, message and looking at God's commandments and how we don't serve a mean and ugly and ogreish God, but we serve a God who cares about all of his creation, a God who is socially justice-minded, which is why he gives us commandments that deal specifically with the issues we complain about the government not taking care of or that we complain about other people not taking care of, but that we very rarely ever open up the word of God and realize how we can take care of ourselves. I don't think it's the government's responsibility to take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the needy. I don't think it's the government's responsibility to, to give welfare out to take care of them. I think it's our responsibility as believers. It's our responsibility as a congregation to honor the words of our Messiah that we say we believe in, we trust, we love, and we follow, yet we fail to follow him every single day. And what we see here in verse 20 of chapter 23 is that the Lord tells us that he is sending his angel before us. And many theologians believe this, and I agree. I believe this to be the pre-incarnate Messiah. This is Yeshua before he was born of a woman because we know that Yeshua has always existed. Yeshua is, a, is God, and he has always existed. He's never not been in the picture. He wasn't plan B. God didn't create us and go, oh, well, they messed that up pretty quick. Let me find plan B real quick. And okay, here's Messiah. We got it covered. It'll work out in a couple of thousand years. No, it was always his plan to bring Messiah about from the very foundations of creation because he knew that we were going to mess this up. He knew what we were going to do. And he knew he had to get us there. And so his plan was always for Messiah. And so he tells us that, that this angel is going to protect us and he's going to guard for us and he's going to fight for us and he's going to bring us into God's promises and we must not ignore his words. He says, watch for him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him because he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. And then as we go through this a little bit further, chapter 24, verse 3 says, so Moses came and told the people, all the words of Adonai, as well as all the ordinances, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which Adonai has spoken, we will do. All the words which Adonai has spoken, we will do. That's one. Then in verse 7, he took the scroll of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Again, they said, all that Adonai has spoken, we will do and obey. All that Adonai has spoken, we will do and we will obey. That root word of neshma is shema, to hear and respond. All that he says, we will do and we will obey. That's two. But those two are a closing of something that is said earlier in last week's Parsha, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. It makes a difference if I actually hit the right verse. Exodus 19, verse 8. <clears throat> this is before the presence of Adonai descends on the mountain. This is before the nation of Israel hears the audible voice of God speak forth. This is before the predication of the sound of the heavenly shofar blast. It says in verse 3, Moses went up to God, and Adonai called to him from the mountain, saying, Say this to the house of Jacob and tell B'nai Israel. This is verse 3. I'm sorry, I backtracked. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you listen closely to my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all people. For all the earth is mine. So as for you, you will be me, to me a kingdom of Kohanim, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words which you are to speak to B'nai Israel. So Moses went, called for the elders of the people, and put before them all these words that Adonai had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, Everything that Adonai has spoken, we will do. Then Moses reported the words of the people to Adonai again. Everything, and I say, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This 
proclamation of the nation of Israel in one voice saying, we will do everything the Lord says, everything he speaks to us, we will do, is said before they ever receive the covenant, before they've ever seen the presence of God, before they've ever experienced the betrothal ceremony that is Mount Sinai. It's, it's before they hear the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments spoken forth. It's before they tell God, we're too afraid of your voice. Let Moses bring us your word from now on. The nation of Israel says, everything that the Lord says, we will do. And then twice at the end of this Parsha, when the covenant is read before them, when the, the, the scroll of the covenant is read before them, they proclaim twice, everything the Lord has said, we will do everything the Lord has said we will do and obey, that's three times in the sandwich of Mount Sinai that the nation of Israel says everything the Lord says we will do. Three in, in, in Hebrew, three biblically is a number of unity. All right? When we get married, we stand under the chuppah, and under the chuppah, it's uh, image of us, the groom, the bride, and, the God, and our God who is a part of our marriage because our, our relationship is brought together as one through the Lord welding us or melding us together. We, um, we see in the scriptures that it talks about in, uh, uh, I think it's Ecclesiastes, if I remember correctly. I thought I had a mark, but I'm missing it. In Ecclesiastes, it says that, uh, that two cords wove together strong, but three coming together cannot be unbound, cannot be broken. It's, it's extremely strong when those three are braided together and that rope becomes one. And so we see that here as we are standing in this covenant relation, this is still at Mount Sinai. This is still in the betrothal ceremony. We are now agreeing in unity three times with one voice, kolachad, with one voice proclaiming everything the Lord says we will do. And then we look forward to the Gospels where Messiah Yeshua says, if you love me, obey my commands. And what is it that we respond in receiving his salvation? Everything you say, we will do. We look at the word of God as though it's dichotomized. There's the new and there's the old. But there's not new and old. There is the word is the word of the word of God. Word of God. Perspective can be tainted and seen as new and old. But there is the word of God. And it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same spirit that breathed the words of Genesis through Deuteronomy, that breathed the words of Joshua through, uh, through Chronicles, the same uh, breath of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, that breathed and inspired the words Matthew through, uh, through Luke, Acts through Revelation, the same breath of God that inspired these Jewish hands, predominantly Jewish hands, to write these words is the same breath of God that resides within you and me. Which means that although on our own, short of the blood atonement of Messiah, short of the empowering of the Ruach HaKodesh, we have no means or grounds whatsoever to actually be able to honor the word of God. But because of the blood atonement of Messiah, we now, because he's on the inside handling the internal, our external should never break the word of God. If we think we have to strive to obey the commandments of God, we're looking at this wrong. Because the Ruach HaKodesh that resides within us, the presence Yeshua that resides within us should be leading us internally so that our lives are always leading or following the leading of God. Not having to look back at his word to figure out how to do things externally, but we're looking at his word, realizing what he's doing internally and the external results of that. Does that make sense? If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all soul, with all our might, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, and Yeshua is within us and is working on the inside to direct our footsteps, to clean up the mess and the muck and the mire that's within us so that we can walk righteously with him, all of that other stuff falls into place. We should naturally, because of the work of Messiah within us, take care of the sick, the orphan, the needy, the widowed, the poor. 
We should naturally be looking out for our enemies even though we know they'll never look out for us. We should naturally be honoring our, our father and our mother. We should naturally uh, make sure that we're not speaking Lashon Hara against other people. We should naturally be taking care of these external things, not because it's something we're striving to do to earn salvation, but because these are things that flow from the work of the Spirit within. But we like to look at the Word of God as though 2,000 years removed from the Gospels that we suddenly have some grander understanding of the, the context and the importance of Scripture than anyone ever has before us. But the Word of God is the Word of God. The Word came and tabernacled amongst us. It became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Yeshua took our sins upon His back that we could be restored to Him in faithfulness so that we can live out a life that is led by His leading from the inside in which the outside honors who he is and what he's done for us and what he is doing in us. And when we allow that sort of a life to go forth from us, when we truly recognize that there are two commands, love the Lord and love your neighbor, that teach us how to love, honor the, two, the ten commands that come from Exodus 20 that teach us how to do all the rest of it, all of a sudden we realize this is God's word God's word flows through us. We may not necessarily understand it. We may disagree on how that means to honor them. Some people uh, may be perfectly fine with eating a ham sandwich, and that's between them and God. I'm not, and I don't. But I'm never going to go to somebody else and shove it down their throat that they have to do what I do because I do it. Because if the Lord's not leading them on the inside to do the same thing, then I'm actually breaking the word of God by trying to force it down their throat. And I pray to God they don't try to force their ham sandwich down mine. But it's my responsibility to honor and to love and to care for them, whether they're my friend or my foe. And the only way that I can do that, because it's not something I can do naturally. We're humans. We are not naturally designed to love everyone. I mean, we are because we're, we're God's creation, but we have sin in our lives. And because of sin, the nature that God created us in has been marred. It has been ruined. It has to be restored and renewed in the blood atonement of Messiah. But because of that sin nature in our lives, we are not naturally capable of loving everyone. All right? Heck, we're not even good at loving ourselves. So how are we going to love our neighbor as ourselves if we don't even know how to love ourselves? Right? We're just not good at it naturally, which means the only way it could be possible is if the work of the Lord is going on inside. We can't be saved by our external works. We can only be saved by what the Messiah has done on the inside, by the blood atonement he has provided for us. And it's important that we recognize that and that when we strive to honor his word, that we strive to honor it with faithfulness and righteousness to who he is within us. And I strongly urge as believers that we recognize, and, and this is a pull up your bootstraps, get out and do something kind of a remark, but I strongly encourage us as believers to recognize that it is our role to take on all of these social justice responsibilities that we try to force on the government and on the states and on everyone else. It's our job. If people are hungry, we should be feeding them. If people are thirsty, we should be giving them water. You know why? Because we have the breath of life and the Mayim Chaim, the living waters that never run dry. That's our job. That's our role. That's our function. And if we're failing at that and we're shoving it on someone else, then we're failing at letting the Messiah work on the inside to make us righteous and holy and clean before him, to make us what he desires of us. Matthew 5, 38, real quick in closing. 
Matthew 5.38, Yeshua says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not exist and do not resist an evildoer, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him also the other. And the one wanting to sue you and take your shirt, let him also have your coat. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him to give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't really sound like the body Messiah we know today, right? We repeat those words, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. So he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Even the pagans do that, don't they? Therefore, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The only way we can be perfect is not in our external attempts at honoring commands, not in our external attempts at at trying to show people that we're really saved, not in our external attempts at trying to show people that we can worship better than everyone else. The only way that we can show people that we are saved, the only way that we can be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, is in his perfect love, in his perfect salvation, and in his perfect Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, leading our lives. And that requires us getting out of the way. That requires the physical being put aside so that the spiritual, the internal, can be led by the presence of God. And then everything else starts to fall in place. When we're truly touched by the work of the Lord, then everything else starts to fall in place. Our lives start to get in order. Our lives start looking out for other people's lives before our own. We start feeding. We start giving to those that need. We start clothing those that are unclothed. We start loving and and praying for those who are in prison. We start reaching out for all these people. And if we're not naturally doing that because of the work on the inside, then we need to get the inside right. Because repentance has to start with us before we can ever lead others to it. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. We thank you for being a gracious and caring God and King. We thank you for being a God who loves and directs our footsteps. Father, I praise you for giving us your word, Father, that we can be in day in and day out, that we can learn from, that we can receive from, that we can be fed from, and that we can encounter you and hear your voice from. Father, I pray that you continue to bless and anoint each and every person hearing this message with your Ruach HaKodesh, with the anointing of your Shekinah, your divine glory upon us, and move powerfully in our lives. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen.